pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're grateful once again for this day where we can stand before you as your people, hear your word, receive your sacrament, and be empowered to serve you in our day. That these aren't just dead words on a page, but there is living, breathing word. And I ask, Lord, that you would do an amazing work in each and every one of us and speak to our hearts in this well-familiar passage so that we would walk away today transformed, empowered, and encouraged in the truth of your great love for us in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite characters in Henry V is the French Herald Mountjoy. The poor guy's just got this awful job because, you know, he's French. And, and you know, he, he, they always get beat by the English. And so it is a fascinating portrayal right bef- after King Henry's given this rousing St. Crispin's Day speech. And here comes Mountjoy through the wood. They've outnumbered the English five to one in what is about to be the Battle of Agincourt. And Mountjoy says these amazing words that only Shakespeare could bring to life. He says, Once more I come to know thee, King Harry, if for thy ransom thou wilt now compound before thy most assured overthrow. It gets better from there. Harry says, Who has sent thee now? He says, the constable of France, that's Middle English for general. The general has sent him. And then Harry breaks out. King Henry breaks out in this wonderful, wonderful soliloquy. And he says, I pray thee, bear my former answer back. Good God, why do you mock poor fellows thus? Tell the constable we are but warriors for the working day. Our gayness and guilt are all besmirched, but by the mass our hearts are in the trim. (sighs) Spare thou thy labor, gentle herald. Tell the constable they shall have none, I swear, but these my joints which, if I shall take leave of them, will yield them little. Tell the constable. And then Montjoy says, I shall, King Harry. And so, fare thee well. Thou shalt never hear Harold anymore. Quite dramatic, isn't it? But the phrase that captured my attention in all of that is, Save thou thy labor, gentle herald. He's rejecting what the herald said. And the reason I share that with you this Lenten season is that this unpopular parable that Jesus speaks is all about the herald and the messengers of God to our lives, and whether we accept them, or do we say, save thou thy labor, gentle herald. I invite you to open up with me 
in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. We jump in the lectionary to, from Luke 15 to Luke 20 where Jesus in, is in Holy Week in the temple. It's the Holy Week Mark reading about the parable of the wicked tenants. And I encourage you, if you don't have your Bible with you, turn to the last page. We print it for you. It is so important that you follow along because God uses this in our lives. So we've printed it for you. And, and, and I know some of you want to use your digital devices, but I see you texting and I see you using, checking your fantasy scores. All right. So, so go to print paper for just a half hour-ish, all right? It's worth it, trust me. But it's fascinating how this gospel parable reminds us through these heralds of three key relationships, because it's all about relationship and listening to the heralds. It's then these spiritual truths that are here for us give us practical application for each and every one of our lives. First, you see the tenant's relationship to the owner. Secondly, you see the tenant's relationship to the heralds. And last but not least, you see the tenant's relationship to the son. All right? Tenant's relationship to the owner. Tenant's relationship to the heralds. Tenant's relationship to the son. So let's look at this. First, we see the tenant's relationship to the owner. Verse 9 reminds us, and, and Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to the tenants and went to another country for a long while. So we have to ask ourselves, what's the responsibility in the, of the relationship of the tenants to the owner? It's pretty self-evident, right? I mean, the owner owns the vineyard, and therefore they work for the owner. It's his risk, it's his investment, it's his money, and they get their pay. And so they have to tend the vineyard in a particular way. And so therefore, I think this means for us is that since they have to tend the vineyard for a particular way, we recognize that they're tending it by his word and for his profit. Okay? By his word means they can tend it any old way. They have to follow his directions, his order, his commands about how to tend the vineyard. And secondly, it means that they tend it to his profit. Of course, they get paid. Honest day's work, honest day page. But he's the owner. And he's going to get the majority of the profit, anything above and beyond that. And it makes sense. The profits are his. Well, he's taking the risk. So are the deficits as well. And so now Luke tells us the main people that he's talking to in the temple here is just like last week. We've got the people, you know, many of whom are irreligious, I'm sure. And then you've got the chief priests, the scribes, and the teachers of the law are here. And Luke is telling us that the main people he's aiming this at is those religious teachers. Because he's talking about a vineyard. And we heard... Carol, read for us Isaiah 5. We also see it in Jeremiah 2. We also see it in Psalm 80 that oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called God's vineyard. And the leaders are called to tend the vineyard 
by his word and for his profit, not theirs. We all are scandalized by pastors who embezzle money, right? It's the same, same thing. It's all for his glory, not theirs. And unfortunately, in the Old Testament, they got it wrong. This was his vineyard. They were given these things, and the religious leaders were to be tenants of the vineyard, not owners. It was their job to do so. Now, of course, therefore, that's, this parable is for this original audience, is aimed at them, but the broader point is absolutely critical for us to see as well, which is this. Look at your life. It consists of the giftings that you have, the talents that you have, the creativities that you have, the positions you hold, the privileges that you hold, the possessions that you hold, the authority that you hold, and the power of some kind. You must recognize, even though God has given you all those gifties, you're a tenant. You're not the owner. You don't take your possessions, your talents, your intelligence, your life as if you're the owner. You're the tenant. Now in this story, the problem is that these tenants begin to act like the owner. And that's the whole point. They won't listen to the herald. Save thou thy labor, herald. And they beat him up. They will not tend by the owner's word, and they will not give the owner his profit or his glory. And so for these chief priests, scribes, and elders, and the people who are failing to listen to God's word and to live for God's glory, we must recognize that we have a tendency to do the same. The Bible tells us it's the nature of the human heart to think of itself as an owner as opposed to a tenant. And this is a frightening thing for us suburban culture people. It is. I know. I am one. We have a mind. We have a position. We have a power. We have some authority. We have a certain amount of money. Relational, financial, sexual desires. But we just can't use these any way we want. You can't just do with your mind anything you want. You can't just believe anything you want. You can't just use any of those things. And this is so against the world, right? We got those self-help books. Master life. You know, I will master life. You set the agenda, you decide the values, but that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches and what our Lord is teaching us, my friends. The world says, act like an owner, and the Bible says, you're a tenant, you're not your own. I liken it to the tuba player playing Beethoven's fifth, deciding he's a free agent and he's going to play Louis Armstrong on the tuba. How would that sound? Stupid. Ridiculous. It's a tuba. But that's what happens in our lives, my friends. We're called to be all one, the body of Christ, living under his authority, speaking as one voice throughout the West Shore. And so we tend to repress the truth in our unrighteousness. And we, will, we have struggled to admit to our hearts that we hate the very idea of God who will not let us be in control. I want to be the owner. 
I want to be in control. We want nothing to shatter that illusion. So that's the first relationship, because this isn't about a religion. It's about a relationship with the God who is and real and loves us. And so the first relationship tells us how we have an obligation to the owner, but we hate it. Secondly, we learn the tense relationship to the messengers. Well, remember now, the original immediate thrust of this parable is to remind those religious leaders God has sent them prophets. He has sent them heralds, messengers, over the years to remind them that they haven't been tending the vineyard as they should have been. They haven't been tending it his ways, nor for his profit. They've done it for their own power and for their own glory. And so he sent them prophets over the years. You can see them, especially if you read Jeremiah. Not only do they beat them up, they kill some of them. Well, the question then becomes, well, how about us? This parable reminds us and teaches us in his mercy that God never gives us just one chance. He's the God of second, third, fourth, 50, 100, 200, 500, 1,000 chances for each and every one of us. Acts 14, 7, that God says, I will not leave myself without a witness. He sends us heralds into our lives to tell us we're not the owners, ultimately, right? We're not the owners. We're to do it by his word and for his glory, not our own. And to shatter that illusion that we're independent and self-sufficient and to show us our true condition is dependent totally upon his sovereignty, not ours. Who are the heralds in our lives? Well, some of us grew up with godly parents. Parents who pointed us to the love of Jesus and taught us the love of Jesus, encouraged us the love of Jesus, brought us into the community of the covenant, you know, taught us the things of the Lord, and that's great. But then some people take that and recognize, well, no parents are perfect. Are there any perfect parents around here? I'm certainly not. And therefore, we, we latch on to what was wrong with our parents, and therefore we deny the rest. And say, none of it can be true, because they got that wrong. And we play the victim. So we beat up the parent heralds. Or how about the Bible itself? It's a herald to us. You know, and, but we take it sometimes and we go, well, I like this part, but I don't like this part. Therefore, we beat up the Bible herald to us. How about the ministries or the church? Let's just take the church. Faithful preaching, faithful pastors, teachers in your lives that you've been blessed with throughout the years. And yet, you know, same thing. I like some of that. I don't like this. Or ministries that formed you, such as Young Life, FCA, InterVarsity, whatever ministry you were part of, maybe perhaps when you were younger, CBS. And yet, you're going to do it your way. Or how about friends who have truly pointed you to the love of God in Christ? Now, for some of you, these messengers have been trying to get you to see this truth, perhaps. And you know, when you really think about it, 
I'm in control of my life. You know that's not true, right? All it takes is one sickness, and you recognize you're not in control. And for each and every one of us, that's coming. None of us gets out of this alive. Okay? So, you know, I might be healthy today, but I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. Life has a way to remind you that you are not the owner, and you know it, and it's just an illusion. No matter hard, how hard you try to control it, no matter how hard you say, I'm going to do it my way, life won't let you. It'll beat you up. So listen, if, if life will not let you be the owner, far and away the most obvious explanation is that you're not the owner. And therefore, so tell me how in the world the fact that life never does what you want it to do is an argument against the existence of God that I've had people say to me. This world's out of control. There can't be a God. Well, to me, that explains there is one. I'm not in control. He is. Even in the midst of my sufferings, God's with me. Okay? What it shows us is that I'm not the owner. Somebody else is. Right? So be reasonable. Life is a, is a messenger. It's a herald itself to us. Constantly coming as proclaiming, you're not in charge. You're not in control. You're the tenant. And my friends, that's a gift. All the heralds in our lives are a gift. And we really don't have what it takes to master life. Your conscience isn't yours. Your creativity isn't yours. Your sexuality isn't yours. Your intelligence isn't yours. Your relationships aren't yours. They're all gifts from God to point you back to the love of God and for you to give the glory to God as you walk with Him with us. But we want the driving wheel, don't you? Kim's mom, Carol, told me this funny story. And I got this great picture. Kimmy's three years old. They live in Dayton, Ohio. Her dad is stationed at Wright Air Force Base, and they lived on a cul-de-sac. You know all those homes that were built in the 1950s and 60s on cul-de-sacs? You know, it was great, wonderful neighborhood. Kids everywhere, and Kimmy loved to play that she was driving in the car. All right? So she's standing on the seat, and I got this cute picture, the cutest thing you ever saw, and she's smiling and driving the car. Now, her mom told me this story, all right? So I got a witness here, all right? And so she's pretending she's driving the car, and she told Kim, don't play in the car. She did. And one day, she's playing with the car. Excuse me. I'm getting used to my new mic here, all right? Um, one day, she's playing in the car, and lo and behold, she slips it into neutral, and it just drives out into the cul-de-sac. Didn't hit any kid. Didn't hit anybody, and she didn't get hit. It was a miracle. Nothing happened. Her mom was a little pissed. <laughs> but that's exactly what we do when we think we're in control. We're nothing more than a three-year-old sitting down who can't even see over the steering wheel. All right? That's exactly who we are. And the Lord is saying in his mercy, I didn't just give you one chance. I'm going to continue to send these heralds until you get it. So let me ask you a personal question. 
First Sunday of the month, we're going to take communion. It's great. Looking forward to it. I encourage you, as we take up the offering today, as we have that quiet part, we intentionally do it. After we've prayed our final prayers, we say, Amen. I take communion, and for about three minutes, there's utter silence. Because there's very few times of silence in our lives. We do that intentionally here. To force ourselves to remind ourselves who's in control. <laughs> what heralds am I really not listening to? Am I not listening to the word of God? Am I not allowing the Lord full lordship in my life? What area of my life am I holding back from him? It's a great thing to be an Anglican Christian. I can't tell you what the Gospel Coalition, everybody goes, if I wasn't what I was, I'd be an Anglican. <laughs> and I say, we got lots of room for healthy Anglicans. Please, come in. You know, but who are the messengers that God is sending into your life that you've been beating up? Maybe God is coming to you and saying, give me the keys. Give me the steering wheel. I'll drive. Right? Are you saying to the heralds in your life, save thou thy labor because you're king and not Jesus? No, don't be dismissive. Don't beat them up. How are you treating the heralds that God has sent you? So we have the relationship of the tenants to the owner, relationship of the tenants to the herald. Now look at, let's look at the tenant's relationship to the son. So Jesus is looking, speaking to this crowd, and his aim is toward those professional religious workers in the temple there who also have political power, and he tells them what happens when the owner sends the son. What do they do? They kill him. And Jesus is saying that to them and to us to remind us that that's our natural bent. In John 15, Jesus quotes Psalm 69, which says, They hated me without a cause. Picking up that theme in Romans 8, 4, Paul says, The natural mind is enmity toward God. Now, enmity is the state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. And notice Paul didn't say, in our natural state, our enmity, it has, the natural mind has enmity towards God. It says the natural mind is enmity towards God. We will not and we cannot admit our hostility toward God, our anger towards God. We don't want him. We hate him, naturally. Unless we have an intervention by the Holy Spirit and we're his children. Because the natural mind is enmity toward God. We don't want to admit it. And I know there might be some who are really struggling with this. But I want to remind you, this is Lent. We do it every year. We remind of our need of a Savior. And this is why. We don't want him to have control. We hate for him to have control. And actually... We hate him. 
And here in the Cleveland suburbs, some of you might be thinking, well, that's just a little overly harsh, Gene. That's a little silly. You know, I might be a little disobedient, you know, but um, it's wrong for you to say I'm really angry at him. I would go so far as to say, here's how you know you're a Christian or not. Here's how you know you're really becoming a Christian. And here's how you know that the Holy Spirit really is opening your eyes. Because it takes the Holy Spirit to see sin, not just as a bunch of rules and regulations, but sin as a whole attitude of resentment toward the claims of Jesus Christ over you. Over all of you. And it permeates you. You see, the hatred of God will not be admitted, but it's there. Aldous Huxley, that brilliant 20th century philosopher who many of us read in college, probably fell asleep doing so, but he was a brilliant guy. But he was a skeptic. He didn't believe it. But he lived an awful life. And he said, I want to live his life in any manner he chose. He says, I didn't want to believe in God because I wanted to sleep with women. A lot of them. Well, what is that? You see, no matter how smart a person is, underneath that veneer of skepticism is hostility toward God. That's what he's articulating there. I'm going to lose control of my life. Well, I won't be able to sleep with anybody. If I'm a Christian, what's going on there? There's anger against God that's really controlling that thinking. My friends, that's dangerous. And it hurts people. It damages people. It's disturbing. And you won't admit it, but you're not being objective if you think that way. On the other hand, let me point something else out. I think it's important because remember who he's talking to. He's talking to both the irreligious and the religious professionals. You can be very religious, you know, and still have anger at God. Flannery O'Connor, in her novel, Wise Blood, had a particular char character who had mastered the art and having the deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. To be a moral person. To be a good person. You know, there's people like that. Why do you think so many people are just good-achieving people and yet really don't believe in Jesus? They're, they're religious, a little, moral, proud of it. They might even, you know, come to church every now and then. They even affirm the 39 articles. That's good stuff, that 39 articles. I had several people tell me that this week. Well, if you're sure you're good and you feel like you're better than others, and you don't need to admit that you're a sinner saved by grace, and you hold up every second by the sheer mercy of God, that's a way to keep control of your life, isn't it? And it's out of hatred of the idea that actually has gotten in charge that you believe that. And they would never admit they hate God, and yet the reason they are the way they are is because they do. And so the best way to avoid a relationship with Jesus is to avoid sin. And some people avoid Jesus out of hatred, and some people avoid Jesus in that idea of losing control. So how do you know you're a Christian? Well, you begin to see this. That Christians are the only people who know that they naturally have hostility toward God. 
they naturally don't want to do it God's way. They admit it, and they hate it. And even though Christians know they're no longer enemies of God, God has slain that humility on the cross for them. And instead of being enemies, we're reconciled, and through the cross of Jesus Christ, we have a loving of God in our hearts. And even though we know there's lots of hostility toward God, we know that we're his friend because of what he's done for us. You know I'm, you know I'm speaking is true, right? You know, you come to church on Sundays and there's somebody you're really still ticked at. You're really ticked at somebody or someone. And you come and you hear the words of the service. I mean, for crying out loud, we've been praying all Lent. We have erred and strayed from your ways like a lost sheep. That's pretty good stuff. We've been praying that for 500 years. You know, you don't pray that naturally. I know you don't. We, we, you know, we, don't, we don't think like that, but you come here on Sundays and we're praying and we soften. And then at the offertory, we think of how, all right, Lord, who, who are the heralds that I've been rejecting, beating up, even killing? I get to that prayer of humble access. I'm not worthy to gather up the crumbs under your table, O Lord, but you're the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. All right, I, 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 I forgive him. You soften, your heart softened towards those people. Isn't it great? Well, fast forward two days later, you're still ticked at him. Why is that? Because a Christian knows our hearts are like a Dixie cup out on a polar vortex day. It doesn't take long for that Dixie cup to harden, does it? And what we need is the Holy Spirit to come along and chunk it up and break it up. And that's exactly what the Lord does. And when you recognize that, you're a follower of Jesus. And you recognize that the Holy Spirit working through the ministry of the word in your life as you read the Bible breaks up the ice. As you pray, he breaks up the ice. As you come on the Lord's day, and you carve out this time and you encourage one another, you hear the word and love one another, he breaks up the ice. As you go out and bless your neighbors where you live, work, and play, he breaks up the ice. Because we know it continually keeps forming because it's the remnants of that enmity. Christians are the only ones who know that. If you know you hate God, it means you're a Christian and you're, or you're becoming a Christian. And if you think this is ridiculous, you're running. You're repressing. And you need, you're living in denial and you need a recovery because that's what the Bible says. And if you think this is a ridiculous idea, that's exactly what you're doing. Jesus says, and he quotes Psalm 118 and verse 17, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And what that means is, what happens to those who stay enemies till the end will either be crushed by the stone or will either build their lives on it. It's the cornerstone. You see, in other words, there's no middle ground here. Do you understand that? That is a question class. Do you understand that? Yes. All right, okay. Am I trying to scare you? 
Yes, thanks, Zach. <laughs> yes, I want, I want you to hear the truth in love. But how do you get a, an intervention with someone who's in denial? You take him to a corner with a couple of friends, family members, and you intervene and you tell them the truth in love. C.S. Lewis said that either sometime during this life you say, God, thy will be done, or either in the next, he will say to you, thy will be done. He will say, all right, your will be done. You're your own. You wanted to be the owner. You wanted to build yourself up. You wanted the glory. You wanted to be in charge. You don't want, didn't want me in this life. I won't force myself upon you in the next. That's the very definition of hell. And living in the unfavorable presence of God forever. Don't stay in denial. What you have to see, Jesus really loves you. He numbers the hairs on your head. He was willing to die for you and he's willing to become an enemy and be treated like an enemy in your place upon the cross. How can it be dangerous to give control to your life to someone like that? It's not. It's beautiful. And when you resist and repress and when you live in denial, you're walking away from the very definition of love for you. I beg of you, if you're sleeping, wake up. Wake up from your denial and your repression with the thought of Jesus Christ's love for you upon the cross because he became an enmity for you and he was slain on that cross so that instead of enemies, you could be a friend. He's glad to do it. Listen to the heralds. And never say to those biblical heralds, save thou thy labor. No. Herald, I get it. I surrender. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask during this time of offertory and communion before we receive it, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll think about how you're trying to show us that we're not in charge. How we still those of us who are Christians and those of us who know we're not and those of us who don't quite know where we are, how we all resist the heralds in our lives. Help us to see that the heralds bring the good news of life itself. Help us to see only by that trusting in you alone and the one who gave his son who experienced all that hostility for us that we can really know life and friendship, your friendship. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.